and discovered to have been a Roman citizen, which was a big mistake for the Roman guard to have done this. And then Paul was put to a trial, which became chaotic by Paul's uh, causing division between the Sadducees and Pharisees, and it became violent, and they evacuated him from that environment. And so the Jews have not been able to pin Paul yet. The Jews are trying to be rid of Paul and his witness against them. So that's the context of what's going on. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. That summarizes what's going on with Paul's life right now. A group of 40 men have just bound themselves to kill Paul, and they have taken a fasting oath before the Lord until this takes place. Uh, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you. The tribune is the Roman authority who has Paul bound, um, uh, collected right now. As though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, that means his nephew, and went and, went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. He took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, he asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow. That is the Jewish council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. The New American Standard says, do not listen to them. Uh, do not be persuaded for them, by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. In other words, don't blow their plan yet. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready. 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lesius to his excellency, the governor Felix. So Claudius Lysias is the tribune, he's the commander, and he's writing a letter to Felix, the governor. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Remember how that's actually not the case? He came down and bound Paul and then was terrified when he found out he was a Roman citizen. So just, it's funny when you're the hero of your own story. <laughs> He says, I came and rescued him because I knew he was a Roman citizen. Okay, so he's taking some liberties here, but he's writing this letter to inform Felix as to why Paul is being sent there. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused and questions about their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once. 
ordering his accusers to state before you what they have done against him. So the soldiers, according to this instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading this letter, he asked what province he was from, so he wants to know his citizenship. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let me just pray quickly. Father, thank you for your word. We ask now that you would open our hearts and minds to understand it and be with my lips to explain it truthfully, Father. May your Holy Spirit um, take its sharpness and just divide our lives, Lord, just that they would search us, convict us, and exhort us in the way of Christ. We pray for your help and strength at this time to do it. In Christ's name, amen. So my sermon title this morning is really just out of the text. It's the conspiracy to kill Paul. And I've sort of summarized that as the conspiracy against the church. Any conspiracy against a member of the church is a conspiracy against the church of Christ. Now today, and I found this uh, very interesting. Today, if you talk about or bring up any form of a secret plan with sinister motives, people will accuse you of being a conspiracy theorist. And there's almost no worse offense that you could commit in the church today as, of being a conspiracy theorist, which is to say the public narrative we're hearing right now might not be the whole truth. There may be truth that's being withheld. And I don't want to make too intense a comment on that, but I'll allow you to draw your conclusions that if the main narrative is being questioned, you're called a conspiracy theorist and dismissed. Amazing how the conspiracy here was to create a narrative, call Paul down as though you were going to examine him. So give a narrative, and then underline that narrative, we will be ready to slay Paul. This is the definition of a conspiracy. It's not untrue because it's called a conspiracy. A conspiracy is a plan to do something between people. And it's elevated so much more so by the involvement between the mob and the institution of the council. That's very important in this morning's message. It's the institutional corruption that this passage, I think, really centers on. The institutional corruption of the council, which represents, obviously, the nation of Israel and the ongoing moral downfall and decay, which would result in God's eventual judgment. We just read about the prophecy from Jeremiah against Israel against Jerusalem. Jerusalem will lie in a heap of ruins. God does not spare his judgment over the rejection of his word and his truth. I find this interesting too. People even condemned Jesus Christ for his conspiracy theory. John 7, 19 and 20, Jesus says, you are trying to kill me. Conspiracy theory, you are conspiring to kill me. We know from the book of John very early on that they had conspired to kill Christ. This was not obviously public. You are trying to kill me. And they responded, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? In other words, Jesus, you are out of your mind. You don't know what's actually going on, what's going on beneath the surface. It's interesting how it's natural to condemn a conspiracy theorist. And I will be the, at the top of the list as one who would be more apt to dismiss somebody bringing me a conspiracy. I'm a very trusting person. 
And it can be hard for me to accept the testimony of somebody who's giving me the alternative narrative. But we can see here that the Roman uh, Tribune actually listened to the boy. He took action and it was the right thing. Very, very interesting narrative for our time today. I also want to state by way of introduction that Satan conspires to destroy not only the church, we know that he's against the church, but also any institution that is founded upon the truth or is commissioned to uphold the truth. Satan is happy to corrupt any and all institutions that are made to uphold human flourishing uh, by way of goodness, beauty, virtue. And I'm going to touch on that more specifically and substantiate that claim. But Satan is out to destroy any institution that would uphold the truth in the public culture. And friends, we are living in times where that corruption and that attack is coming more and more to the surface. The reason why Satan does this is because the church institution is designed to steal from Satan what he belongs, what he believes belongs to him. We've talked about that, right? Where Christ says the rich man, or sorry, the strong man must be bound first before you plunder his home. That's exactly what Jesus said he has done with Satan. He has bound him in order to plunder his home. So Satan is lashing out and trying to protect what he believes is his. The church has been commissioned to steal back, to take back what is rightfully Christ's. And Satan is ongoingly trying to corrupt and persecute and otherwise destroy the work of not only, again, the institution of the church, but all public institutions who hold to that truth. We'll also see that this hostility against the church is always present in every age. We're not trying to say this is some unique time in history. Hostility against the church and against its messengers has existed in every age. But the time when it becomes from a conspiracy to an action is when those institutions which would have otherwise restrained that impulse, restrained that desire, when they have become so sufficiently corrupt that there is no longer a barrier there for that sin to run wild. And we're going to show that through our text as well. Okay, So persecution against the church has always been in every age. When we see it become bad is when institutions no longer provide the barriers and the common grace restraint against those evil impulses. It's just like when your children want to do something bad, parents are a natural restraint against that evil. It doesn't mean they don't want to still do the bad thing, but we restrain them from doing it. And when parents are corrupted by sinful desire and allow their children to do those evil things, then those evil things get done. See what I'm saying? So it, it's that, but on a bigger scale. So let's look at the increase. First part of my outline is the increase in the public tolerance of persecution. In other words, when Jesus was around, they tried to keep the plot very secretive. Remember that? They wanted to arrest Jesus Christ by night. They didn't want to upset the people. They didn't want to upset. They didn't want to arrest him at the festivals. Okay, they wanted to do everything secretly because there was a public admiration for Jesus Christ. They knew that if they attacked Christ publicly, it would cause an uproar. That's earlier on. That's decades earlier. We've now come to the point where open plots are being made to destroy the work of the church without fear of retribution, without fear of cultural backlash. And so we're seeing an increased tolerance 
for persecution of the church. Again, I think that's a parallel to what we're seeing today. We're also going to see how Rome is upholding the institutional justice of the time while Jerusalem is rotting. So we see, again, a comparison between Rome and Jerusalem. And then we see in the final place in this text, the sovereignty of God among his nations, among his instruments, and for Christ. Again, we're, we're almost going to finish every sermon with the, especially in Acts, with the sovereignty of God to accomplish his purpose. And that is the truth that we lean on. We don't go out of here saying, everyone's against us, we're going to go fight. We go out of here saying, God is sovereign over our circumstance, and he will use us to advance his cause and his gospel, just as he did in the first century. So we see this, this conspiracy forms out of an increased fervency against Paul. They already hate Paul, we know that. We've seen it, they seize him, the Asian Jews seize him in the temple. They want to do away with Paul because he's preaching Christ and he is condemning their shallow observance of the Jewish law, that they are missing the point of it, which is Christ. And they have been unable to catch him in a trial. It became so violent that the Romans evacuated Paul from that situation. So they were unable to convict Paul in a trial. And so now they're saying, to heck with the trial, Let's just kill him. Break him off. Let's bypass the trial. Let's just go and be done with it. And there's 40 men in this plot. 40 men thinking, you know, Paul has some guards. He has some protection. We're going to need more than two or three. We'll get 40 men. And so they, they take this religious oath. I mean, make no mistake. It's not just an oath between them. This is a religious oath where they fast until the, the purpose is accomplished. Uh, Jesus said, again, in the Gospel of John, he told his disciples that the hour is coming where those who kill you will think that they are offering service to God. They will become so convinced of their own idolatry in their mind that they believe destroying the Christian witness is of service to God. The Christian message is increasingly becoming seen as, as harmful to our world. And the reason is because the gods of our world are confronted and destroyed by the Christian witness. And so they make this religious oath to, uh, to take on Paul and to, um, to destroy him. Now, I, I find it interesting that the word or the phrase, the Jews, appears a few times in the book of Acts. And it really represents a religious block of people. When it, when it speaks of the Jews, it's speaking of a, an ideological group, not just an ethnic because we know that Paul was a Jew, but he wouldn't be included in the Jews. So when the Acts speaks of the Jews in most places, especially when you go from about Acts 15 and on, you're looking at a religious and ideological block who is opposed to Christ. And I really liken them back to Ephesians, I'm sorry, Acts, when, it, when it's in uh, Ephesus, which I think is just in the 19th. The Ephesus riot occurred because of an ideological and religious block of people. They weren't Jews, but they were pagans. But they hated Paul for the same reason that the Jews did. Their temples are being emptied. Their religious devotion is being condemned because it is without substance. And so in the same way that their livelihood was being destroyed, the Ephesian pagans, the Jewish um, influence and authority is also being gutted from them. As Paul preaches Christ, the authority and control that the 
that the Jewish temple and the sacrificial system would have over people is being diminished. And so for the same reason, they are protecting their own religious views. And so they thinking that if they destroy Paul, that they will destroy the message and they can go back to their normal way of life. Well, for 2,000 years, that hasn't worked. For 2,000 years, people have thought, if we can only get rid of the Christian message, we'll finally be free and happy. It's never been the case. Never been the case. And again, that time, I would say, is increasing now in our land against the church. Most of us weren't here. uh, Well, none of us were here 100 years ago. We're essentially... The, the Christian ideology and religion was sort of baked into our public institutions. And, and they were made to uphold them and at least serve them in some way. It doesn't mean every prime minister or judge has ever been a Christian, but they were tasked with upholding the Christian view. We are now seeing now that as those things deteriorate, there is an increased public tolerance for denying and for persecuting and for sidelining the Christian viewpoint the Christian witness, the Christian testimony. What I want you to see in this text, and I think what really haunts this text, is the way that the council was involved in this plot. The council is the group of people who were charged with hearing cases and judging them based on the truth of God's word. They were there to examine people according to the word of God. And when the mob comes to the council and says, we want Paul dead, the council says, we'll help you. What really haunts this text is how the council had become so corrupt that they gave in to this evil plan. In a better time, this mob would have come to the council and said, will you help us? And the council would have taken them all into custody and charged them with conspiracy to murder or attempted murder in a better time. But they had become so religiously empty that they took this plan upon themselves to help the mob carry it out. That's what haunts this text. And I want to remind you of, and this is a a plot to say, call Paul and as though you were going to put him on trial. So call Paul and say, Paul, your next hearing is Thursday at 7 p.m. And essentially that they would know when Paul would be traveling outside of the barracks, outside the protection of the Romans, and they would ambush him. That's the plot that they've hatched. And we need to read from Proverbs chapter 1 where the king Solomon is instructing his son as to how to be a godly ruler. Proverbs chapter 1 says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Hey, Wynn, what do you do if sinners entice you to sin? We learn this, right? What do we say to them? We say no. If sinners entice us to sin, what do we say, kids? No. We say we won't do that with you. We will not consent. That is the restraint of sin that God has put in the world through his people. We won't consent. We won't do it. We won't participate. You can hang us up if you want. You can lock us away, but we're not going to participate in your sin. The council has all but fully abandoned the fear of God, and they have fully consented to this sin. Now, again, the irony here and the sadness is that the council is, a, is an instrument of justice. It's an instrument of let's hear both sides. 
Let's hear the situation and we will make a righteous judgment based on God's word. But instead, they're becoming the very institution that will deny Paul that ability. It will deny Paul that access to God's righteousness, to God's justice. What should shock us is that the institution charged with doing something when they do the exact opposite. Right? When we think of a stories of an athletic coach that parents trust their children with. Gymnastics, let's say. We've heard a lot of stories of gymnastics coaches with girls ranging from age you know, 8 up to 16. And we find out that that coach has abused those young girls. He was supposed to be there to help them fulfill a good thing, athleticism. He was there as their guardian. And instead, he's done the exact opposite. What about a teacher that we find out has abused students? A teacher is there to help students flourish and learn and grow in God's world. And it, it, it shocks us the most when people who we trust to do something do the exact opposite, especially those in authority. That's why we should be shocked by this. That the public institution of justice is crumbling before our eyes in the book of Acts. It's rotting away. It's deteriorating. And I want to talk to you, and I, and I, and I won't miss this opportunity to speak about the institution of education in our time, because this is happening in our time in our public institutions. You know, it was some about 40 years ago where they quote unquote uh, took prayer out of schools. And I know that can be a real political issue and let's get prayer back into schools. But what but my aim to demonstrate is, let's look at it scientifically. What has happened to the institution of education since ideologically removing the Lord? It has become a place where children are preyed upon, where they're emotionally and ideologically manipulated. And I want to read to you a quote from Ryerson. There's a university in Toronto named after him. He's also the founder of the public education system here in Ontario. This is our context. This is what he said. He said, by education, I mean not the mere acquisition of certain arts or of certain branches of knowledge, but the instruction and discipline which qualify and dispose the subjects of it, so the students, and for their appropriate duties and employments of life as Christians, as persons of business, and also members of the civic community in which they live. And so Ryerson acknowledged education is to assist the Christian to live their life in God's world. He would also later say that instruction in the schools would be but a sounding brass and a tinkling symbol when not founded upon and sanctified by the undefiled and regeneration, regenerating religion of Jesus Christ. In other words, education would become nonsense if it were not sanctified by the Christian religion. The nonsense and the, the, the ill logic that children are being indoctrinated with in our public school system is not a, a mere result of a few bad teachers. It's the result of rejecting the sanity and truth of God. I'm not saying that we need to go back in and protest the schools. I'm saying we can do better. I'm saying we can start over. I'm saying that leave institutions behind that have abandoned the fear of God. This is exactly what's happened with this council. They have become so corrupt and so abandoned God's word that they, they are not even anchored in reality. To them, to pervert justice is to execute justice. When God is removed from an institution, it does not become neutral. This is a lie that the church has believed for far too long. 
we are told that the school system or medical system should not and ought not be based on one certain religion. And so we need to make them neutral by removing the fear of God from them. We've seen this. The medical system is based on the Hippocratic Oath, which is to do no harm. And now we see so much medical activism is actually surrounding death. Medical progressivism now is to uh, provide death for the unborn and death for the elderly. And for Okay, and so the medical system, having abandoned the fear of the Lord, is now becoming an instrument of death in so many cases. It is doing the opposite of what has been charged to do. You see that parallel. The medical system, which ought to be for the flourishing of life, has become an instrument of death in so many cases. Likewise, the institution of education, rather than causing children to flourish and grow, has become an agent of propaganda and manipulation. In fact, COVID has created a chaos, uh, a crisis in public education because teachers are now afraid that parents might be involved in their children's education. Many parents are being asked to sign waivers and commitments not to be in the room while their teachers are dealing with their children. So there's a crisis for the education system, which has so long been given our children. Now what are we going to do? Parents are going to be involved again. And so we need to recognize that this institutional corruption has public consequences. And so there's an increased intolerance of the Christian uh, restraint that God has put over it. Institution are, as I said, a, a form of a public barrier as to what is acceptable or not. Whether or not you are a Christian, we are bound by the cultural tolerance of what is good and evil, which again is not just perpetuated by the church. We are the pillar and buttress of the truth in the world, but many institutions that have been set up in cultures are also there to uphold those same truths. So whether they be uh, social assistance uh, institutions or economic institutions or medical or educational institutions, they uphold those same truths. And they are informed by, and ought to be informed by, the truths of the Christian faith. And so when these public institutions deteriorate, we see more and more lack of restraint, more and more public and outward and overt sin. I'm trying to help you understand what's going on in the world. I hope you're not on Twitter, and I hope you're not following American news but this is what happens when institutions give way to evil and when they push God out and say, God, we don't need you anymore. We can handle it ourselves. Cities literally burn to the ground. This is just what's happening, folks. And this is not to say we need to go and forcefully impose the Christian faith. This is just for us to recognize we ought not to be embarrassed about our Lord. We ought not to be embarrassed about the word of God. We ought not be embarrassed to say this is not just the book for the church. This is the book for the world. The church is just the first group of people who believe in it. But this book is for the whole world. It's for everybody to order their lives around. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like water covers the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. So institutions who are not anchored in God's law are run by the mob. Do you see that? The mob comes to the council and says, we have a plan to do evil. And the council has no moral opposition to this plan. Institutions without an anchor and a foundation upon fear of the Lord, they will be run by the mob. Some of us, we would now call that democracy. Do you know that? I just read this the other day. Under Justin Trudeau, um, public polling spending has tripled under his leadership. Tripled. 
He spends $11 million a year on public polls. Why? Because he has no agenda based in the truth of God or for a vision for our country. He wants to find out what we all want and then give it to us. That's not leadership. That's not fear of the Lord. That's not an agenda based in the unchanging word of God. That's mob. Tell me what you want and I'll do it for you. Friends, this is just for us to see illustrations that are happening in real time as to what it looks like to push the Lord and the word of God and the fear of God out of the ongoing activities of everyday life. And again, Christ is not just to have authority in the church. Our world is discovering right now that when you seize or attempt to wrench authority from Christ, corruption and decay and violence begins to take place. We just read in Psalm 32 this morning that those who hate the righteous will be condemned, that God's justice will not be perverted. God watches over his people. God takes care of his own. God will execute perfect justice. But in real time and space, in real cultures, a lot of bad stuff happens. A lot of corruption takes place. And God's people are often the subjects of it. God's people are often hauled between biased judges or unfair counsels or unjust persecution. That's the reality. That's the world we live in. And, and as we follow along with Paul's story, we see how God uses it and we can submit to it in joy. But we want to see, so, so that's, my, that's my analysis of the institutional corruption of this council and I think how it applies to our culture. That's understanding the times that we live in. Let's focus a little bit more on how God's people uh, take place in that and some of the evidences for that. And so I want to just compare Rome and Jerusalem a little bit here. And so Rome and Jerusalem are kind of butting heads all along about Paul, right? Jerusalem wants him dead quickly. Rome is afraid because he's a Roman citizen. And so we see how Paul, again, was this perfect instrument chosen by God because he was, had, had sort of one foot in either culture. He was a citizen of Cilicia by birth. His father was probably a wealthy Roman to begin with. Paul was not an insignificant character, and the Romans could not just do away with him quickly or by night because they had to keep the value of their citizenship high. And so again, we see Jerusalem crumbling while Rome is the one upholding some form of justice right now. And again, that is the biggest shame to God's people. When the institution of, of the church or the temple has become so corrupt that they rot away while the pagan empire of Rome is upholding a form of citizenship citizenship and is upholding a form of freedom, upholding a form of righteousness and just in due process. And so God intervenes here. And I want you to see this little this young man. This is Paul's nephew. He was the son of Paul's sister. He maybe had come to Jerusalem to do the same type of training that Paul did. Perhaps he was even involved in the plot because they assumed that Paul's nephew hated him just as much as they did. Because when Paul came out of his Judaic uh, heritage to follow Christ, he was despised by his uh, Jewish brothers, right? And so they might have assumed Paul's nephew would hate him more than ever because he had disgraced their family by coming out of Judaism. Well, they were wrong. So when, or that's speculation, but however it was that the nephew found out, the nephew wanted to protect Paul. 
maybe he's young enough that he still has a family bond to Paul, and he goes to the uh, tribune and says, you need to hear about this plan. And so God is intervening against this Jewish revolt, against this Jewish rebellion, against this Jewish plot, and the Romans assemble what we would now call overwhelming force to put down and resist this evil plot. If you do the math there, they assemble 470 troops. Look at that in your text again. I just want to make sure we have that right. So they find out about it. And in verse 23, it says, He called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers. So that's foot soldiers. With 70 horsemen. 70 cavalry. Uh, ca cavalry and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea. This is overwhelming force. And so there was a journey that they wanted to bring Paul from Jerusalem up to Caesarea. And essentially what they recognized was that the anarchy and the unrest that was simmering in Jerusalem was, was so unpredictable and so unhinged that they assembled this massive um, uh, standing army almost I mean, they, the plot was only for 40 men, but what they said was, we're not only going to overwhelm these 40 men, but as we travel up to Caesarea, we are going to put down any attempts at Paul's life. What they recognized was that Jerusalem was crumbling into a state of anarchy. It was deteriorating into a state of civil unrest and, uh, and judicial insanity. That they were willing to just assassinate this man, and Rome stepped in and said, no, this is not going to take place. And so Jerusalem is beginning to show the major cracks in their, in their community, in their society. The substance was all but entirely gone from the Jewish nation. The substance of fearing God was gone, and all that was left was the form. All that was left was the shell of this council, utterly devoid of the fear of God. And they're showing all the signs of unbelief that Paul once demonstrated. We see that they're given to violence. We see that they've given into persecuting the church which Paul was actively involved in before he became a Christian. And we see that they were hypocritically and proudly clinging to religious devotion while they had rejected God. And so this is God removing the witness of this one nation. God is removing the witness from Israel, and he is giving that witness to the church. Okay, his new people, his new composition of his redeemed. And so he's giving it to the church, which, by the way, is an institution that is just as prone to corruption as any PTA, parent-teacher association, okay, or anything that would be formed. All of these institutions, if they involve people, they are prone to corruption. Paul said it to the Ephesian elders. Keep watch, because wolves will come in, and they will teach corrupt things, and they will not spare the sheep. And so the church must be as on guard as Israel was against this kind of apostasy, against this pride that would push God out. And again, I just want to encourage us, be like the boy. I don't say that much about our scriptures. Be like the boy. He hears of the plot, and he doesn't go home and write a blog about it and say, ah, there's so much evidence of evil in our society. He doesn't get on Facebook and say, oh, things are so bad. You won't believe the plot I heard of today. He doesn't go and stand and protest. He says, I need to stop this. God's people are often instrumental in the smallest ways to stop and restrain evil, to stand in the way, to get in the way. I mean, can you imagine what this young boy was risking 
He just heard of a plot for 40 Jewish men to assassinate his uncle. I don't know how old he was, 16 maybe. The age of manhood in, in the Jewish culture was 13. This was a very, very, maybe Lulu's age. This was a very young person who had heard of this plot and was willing to go to the Roman authorities and say, don't believe them. Imagine word got back that their plan collapsed because of this young boy. It took, I mean, the level of courage it was to just stand in the way of this evil is instructive to the Christian church. It's instructive to stand in the way of evil. Don't tolerate the proliferation of sinful plots, whether it be in your child's education or whether it be in uh, you know, the public institutions of justice or whatever it may be. Don't stand and tolerate and just complain about evil. Christians are so good at pointing out evil and saying, I can't believe things are like that. But how often do we stand and get in the way like this young boy who probably didn't have the wherewithal or the sense to go back to his congregation and preach a sermon ranting against corruption like I am now? I have a question to think that. He stood and he restrained evil by his very action. Because no matter where the society is, there's always some preserving element to it okay god is at work he promised he would not destroy the earth okay he would not destroy the earth in its totality again there is always some restraint for the opportunity of the gospel and remember paul's life is not so special that god just needs it needs it needs it. god has a purpose in paul going to rome and god's purpose will not be thwarted by this jewish oath and so the boy again is god's instrument to report this evil and to restrain this plot against Paul. And as we see, Luke writes this letter, or Luke records the letter of Paul going up to Felix, who was a governor. He was not the emperor. We know that Paul went from Felix uh, eventually to Rome. So Paul's case is being escalated here from the local Jewish council to the Roman tribune, up to the local governor who is Felix and then eventually up to Nero that he would face in Rome. And so Paul's case is moving along and gaining uh, sort of public attention. This is what Christ will do, whether it is by persecution or whether it is by bold, courageous witness. God's fame and the proclamation of the gospel will grow and be used in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Remember, Paul is at the center of this. Can we just think like Paul for a minute? He was seized unfairly in the temple. He was almost torn apart and beaten by the Jews in that time. He was grabbed by the Romans and bound and eventually freed by them. He was almost, uh, he was almost destroyed in the council just for speaking the truth. And now there's a plot to kill him and he needs to be evacuated in the middle of the night. If you're Paul, how much anxiety are you living with day to day wondering if tomorrow will be your last? What if those people find me tomorrow? What if they finally get to me? And all the while, you're asking of God, is this the only way you can accomplish this? Is this how your gospel has to be used? Can I not just you know, preach from my office or preach from my pulpit each Sunday and just do it that way? Paul is a human instrument being used by God for God's glory, and he is suffering magnificently for it. And yet there's no, there's no words of protest from Paul that are recorded here. Very likely because Paul in 2311 heard from Christ, take courage or you will go to Rome. He took courage 
in the word of God. He took courage in the presence of Christ with him. He would eventually be fully imprisoned, uh, awaiting his trial. And in prison, he would write Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon, books that would eventually be included in our scriptures. Paul's imprisonment was instrumental, not only for his day and his time, but instrumental for the history of the church in ways Paul likely did not even anticipate or recognize. In one of those books, in Philippians, Paul wrote, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. He not only said, I have lost everything, but he has said, I don't even miss it for the sake of Christ. We have lived in such comfortable circumstances as the church for so long, we can't imagine losing all things for Christ. We want Christ plus the all things. And I'm speaking to my own heart when I say that. You know, the houses we live in and the, and the comforts that we enjoy and the tax benefits that we enjoy and the, the relative justice that we experience in the public square. I, I, we, would, we wouldn't give that up willingly. But when all of these things are stripped from Paul, his family loyalties, his wealth, his autonomy, his stature in the Jewish faith. Remember, he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was a superstar in the Jewish faith. He has said, I've suffered the loss of everything. He wrote this from prison uh, shortly after this account. And he says, I count them as rubbish because in Christ I have everything. Paul is a willing instrument. And, and, and in all of this, as we analyze our culture and understand why it's going on the way it is, and that's not to be hostile to our culture, it's so that we can be the proper doctors that we ought to be to it. You can never fix an issue unless you know why it has come to that point. So I don't analyze our culture so that we can become hostile to it. It's so that we can become effective in it. Even as we analyze all of that, we need to recognize that when God's top priority is the fame and advance of Jesus Christ and his gospel will stop despairing. We will stop despairing at what we've lost. I don't, I don't care that we've lost our building. I don't care that um, Christianity is, is, is not welcome in the public schools anymore. It bothers me for the sake of children, but I don't care for those things. Because everything that's going on in our culture, everything that is happening to the church, is being done and perfectly orchestrated by our God to advance the proclamation of Christ. That's the goal. Keep that focus in mind. It's to advance Christ. It's to provide opportunity to advance Jesus Christ and his gospel and his kingdom. And when we see that, we'll joyfully submit to and live in whatever circumstances we're in. I always think, oh, I'd love to go back to the 1950s. It'd be great to be a pastor in that age, in that time. It'd be much easier to be a school teacher in that time. Not well. That's not our time. Our time is today and now, and Paul's time was then. And when we recognize the opportunity that is now in the sovereignty of God over our time, then we will live effectively within it, and joyfully so. Christians ought not to be dour and, and angry. We have to be opportunists. This is an opportunity for the church. 
in the same way that Paul's persecution and imprisonment was an opportunity for him to advance and plant churches and write gospels and all that sort of thing. And so I just want to close with this question. What can Christians do? Uh, number one, we can live peaceable lives, right? That's the goal, Paul said. Pray that for your leaders that you might live quiet and peaceable lives. Preserve the purity and the truth of Christ in the family institution. That is the institution over which you have the most control. Your own family, your own personage. If you don't have a family immediately living with you, the institution of your individuality. Keep that under Christ. Keep Christ's word as the authority of whatever institution you have control over. You can do that. That's part of being equipped by the word of God and applying it um, as faithfully as you can. Number two, uphold the institutions that are devoted to truth and beauty and, and, and the knowledge of God. Uphold those institutions. And if institutions have abandoned and, and jettisoned any fear of God, then leave them behind. If they have caved to idolatry, let them go. Wherever necessary and possible, start new institutions. A lot of families have turned either to Christian school or homeschool in, in the recent years and the rapid progression of sin in the public school system. So Christian families are responding and starting new institutions of education. The family is given the job of education, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and the church, actually, you, many of us don't talk about this much, but the church is given the responsibility to adjudicate cases within the church. Paul said to the church, why would you go to the, the worldly authorities to judge between you? If you have one person charging another person of some sin or some crime, then have court in the church. Hear the case yourselves. If you're going to judge the angels one day, surely we can judge each other in righteousness based on the word of God. The church, the family, and the individual ought to be establishing these institutions that preserve and uphold truth and justice in our time. And above all, continue in the confidence and the knowledge that we are living under the sovereign Lord and that Christ is the only sane and good way to live in this world. Don't be embarrassed about the Christian faith. Don't be embarrassed of the gospel. We're seeing more and more in the public square the fruit of leaving behind Christ. It makes more and more, it gives more and more evidence for the Christian faith. That in Christ, you can find sanity, wholeness, acceptance of your body, sanity in your mind, and fairness and justice between people. Only Christ provides those things. If we have believed so far that the world can provide a secular version of them, it's only, it's only a balancing act that can last for so long. Eventually, the rotten timbers will show their strength and it will cave in. Don't be deceived that this can be recreated without the foundation of God's knowledge. It can't be. It's only a temporary balancing act. Christ is Lord of all, and we have to continue to advance that lordship through proclamation and through our actions and our deeds. And God is with his church. Don't be discouraged. Don't be disheartened. We're living in hard times. We're living in difficult times. And I don't say that in comparison to what the church has faced for all the ages, because it's still nothing compared to that. But for us, this is new. And that's okay. We can live in faithfulness to that by virtue of understanding and applying God's word. And so as we continue in Acts, we see how God's purposes unfold through circumstances that are both good and difficult.
For God never abandons his church, he never abandons his people, and we can live in that confidence. Let me pray, we'll close with a song. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, we pray that its instruction would be uh, deep within our hearts, that we would mind what you've said, that we would believe it, and uh, pray for obedience to do it. I ask that Christ would be sanctified as holy in our hearts, that we might follow and live in accordance with his authority and his revealed truth. Thank you for these people, Lord. Bless them and strengthen them as they, as they live in you and as they go out and, and do good works among the world to be salt and light. Please use those things to draw attention to God, not to us, but to God. And uh, thank you for Paul and his example and what he endured as Jerusalem was uh, decaying and as the kingdom was going out and restructuring and rebuilding societies as it has been for 2,000 years. But we thank you for these truths and ask that we would be encouraged most of all by Jesus Christ's lordship and we would find our peace in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.